0: Today's episode of Brave Journeys is brought to you by Tidy, professional organisers helping bring calm to your everyday. I'm Tammy Faraday and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about amazing people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit and grace. When Professor Gemma Carey was 12 years old, a man twice her age would sneak into her bedroom on a weekly basis and sexually assault her. When Gemma was 17, she took the perpetrator to court without anyone else knowing and had him placed on the child sex offenders register. Perhaps most startling is that for 20 years, Gemma's mother had known about her daughter's abuser. But why hadn't she acted to protect her daughter?
1: I love my mum completely, and I don't forgive her for what she did. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm angry, and I'm not angry at my mum. It's more that I understand, and I don't find what she did acceptable, but I love her anyway. So it's about the contradictions that we can hold, and, and I think particularly in family, working out how to hold those contradictions can be really valuable.
0: Could the genesis of this unspeakable betrayal be found in Gemma's mother's own family history? This is Gemma's story. An enormous welcome to you, Gemma. Thank you for having me. Can you take me back to what it was like to be nestled in a middle-class life and be loved, but not loved correctly?
1: That is a very big question. Look, I think what's challenging about it is, and my psychologist has this saying that um, always comes back to me, which is, if you've been hit, you know you've been hit. But when you're told that you're loved and you might have all of the privileges of a middle-class life, it can be really hard to put your finger on why something doesn't feel right or why you don't feel loved in a family.
0: What was it about the family that you were growing up in that made you feel this disconnect between how you thought you were supposed to feel and cherished and loved and embraced and what didn't make you feel that way?
1: Well, I always felt very alone in my family and I think that stems from that in the family that I grew up in, you didn't have individual wants or needs. Um, It was more that you needed to bend as the family bent and to push back against that was seen as emotional or hysterical or being a bad child or being a child that was acting out. And that part might be perhaps more common to people who grew up in all sorts of different families around the idea of as long as you're compliant, you're a good child. But if you're acting out even as a young age or you're you're sad as a small kid, there's going to be a reason for that. Like kids aren't inherently sad, right? It's something about the environment and and the family context that's creating that situation. And I think in my family, my parents didn't really want to have to face that. And so they problematized me instead of problematizing a family unit. understand. And, I mean, you cite in the
0: book, which was really powerful, that you wrote in your classroom about your sadness and you were asked to write something subsequent to that and you said you were less sad than you had been the last time you'd written something and your mother reacted pretty ferociously, if I can say that. She was very alarmed that you had sort of disclosed this. Is that a fair reflection of what happened?
1: I think she didn't want to have to confront limitations in her own parenting. I don't know. With my mother, a lot of things came out as anger, where they should have maybe come out as self-reflection or compassion or help-seeking behaviour. Instead, they just came out as anger.
0: And she cast a very wide shadow in the family, it seems. I mean, the way that you describe her when she was sort of in the thick of mothering was the kind of person who took the oxygen out of the room. I don't want to be unkind in any way, but is, is that kind of the personality that she had I don't want to be disrespectful in any way but is that a fair depiction
1: yeah look I think it's kind of funny that in one of the sort of first full drafts of my book that went in front of the publisher and the structural editor's eyes they said your mum's missing from this book And I was like what do you mean like it's all my mum and they said well I just don't get a sense of her personality and I realized it was because she looms so large in my life that I'd forgotten to even bother describing her to the readers. And you'd
0: assume if someone had such a an overwhelming nature, to put it in one way, that you wouldn't necessarily have deep dived into the type of person she was. But it's funny that you say that for you, she was sort of all encompassing and therefore you didn't really need to go into the minutiae of her character.
1: She just was everything and everything rotated around her and that that is all I had known for 33 years till she died and it didn't occur to me that the world could look a different way so I'd never bothered to even explain it in a story that is 50 or more percent about my own mother.
0: Interesting. So do you think that the profound loneliness that you felt within the context of your family made you a more vulnerable child?
1: absolutely you know that's kind of the core thing that I explore in my book you know sometimes it does happen randomly but sometimes it happens because of the context that kids are you know embedded in and in my case that was a family context of feeling alone and not really feeling heard and listened to and so when someone came along who was saying I have lots of time for you and lots of time to listen to what you have to say and what you have to feel and to um, make you feel valued when you express those things. Well, of course, that was an incredibly alluring thing.
0: How did you come to meet your abuser, David? Use the name David in the book. I'm not sure that that's his name and that's kind of irrelevant, but for the sake of communicating, let's call him David. So how did you meet him?
1: So David and I met on what we would now call the internet, but this is pre-internet internet, being in the 90s, So back then it was called a bulletin board and it was just like, I guess like how you would have messenger boards and and things on the internet now. So you're talking to people through a computer and it's just text-based, you couldn't do images back then. But everyone you're talking to is in your city, which made it the perfect apparatus for pedophiles right? Because we already know the internet functions in that way for pedophiles, but this was a microcosm of the internet. It, every kid you were talking to, you could actually meet in person. And it was before a time that parents or police had any concept, probably even that bulletin boards were, existed Like you know, in the very early days of the internet, let alone thinking about the harmful and malicious ways that people might be able to use them.
0: What was it about David that drew you to him? I mean, you were 12 years old, I believe, when you met. Where were you in your own life? We've discussed loneliness and we've said that you sort of didn't feel embraced by the family unit. But do you remember what was going on at 12? I barely remember what was going on at 12, but I'm curious, do you remember vividly what was going on for you at the age of 12?
1: I don't. I don't. And and I don't think that there's a particularly kind of profound answer to why David, other than he was the predator that happened to capture me. I think there's a point, a point in the book where I describe, describe him as beige, like if I was to meet him as an adult now, I'd probably think he was a very well and, and messed up person, but he certainly wouldn't be an attractive person or alluring person or an interesting person even. I think the fundamental thing about him and why he was able to kind of gain my trust in, and enter my life in that way is that he acted like a kid. And for some kids, it can be just that simple, really. Absolutely. That's enough.
0: I, I would really appreciate because you're very wise and you, and you write so magnificently. I'd really love you to talk me through the grooming process or the methodology. I'm not even speaking specifically about David, but can you break down for everybody listening what it is to be groomed, what kind of conversations ensue and how they very slowly, very incrementally break down the defences of the victim?
1: I don't think that if you haven't experienced it, I imagine it's quite hard to understand and it, it doesn't go from zero to 100. It is incremental, it's careful. In my experience, it was normal conversations and then those conversations have little bits and pieces of sexually explicit comments woven into them. In my case, they weren't even about me because we hadn't met in person. They are about his sex life with his girlfriend And then all of a sudden there you are at 12 and 13 talking about someone else's sex life, which is incredibly inappropriate, right? But for me at least that's one way that it gets snuck in and then slowly over time that shifted to conversation, more conversations about sex. And then once we met, then it was sexual conversations about me. And I talk about in the book as well about there's this funny phenomena uh, and I've spoken to other um, child abuse victims about this as well where there'll be this sense of like the abuser is trying to maintain their own moral either superiority or worth in some way. So in my case, that played out as, you know, I've met you and these are the things that I would want to do to you, but I'm not going to come to your house because, you know, I'm holding myself back. Like that's some kind of noble act. The other one that was said to me and and I know other people who um abuse that was used on as well is I'm educating you you know I'm I'm guiding you into the world of adult sexual interaction and if it and and I'm doing it you know like my abuser would say to me like if it wasn't me you might have been violently raped by somebody else on, on this bulletin board on the internet but isn't it a gift that it was me and I was gentle and I cared about you and I love you And there's this moral justification that I think, you know, I'm not actually sure that that justification is for me. I think that justification actually is for themselves to try to reconcile their own actions with a society that tells them what they're doing is wrong.
0: So, I mean, I wasn't going to go here now, but do you think that there is a cognitive dissonance that pedophiles, abusers, groomers, whatever language we use, experience or do you believe that, by and large, they think there is an absolute entitlement and right to behave the way they do?
1: I imagine it's different for different people, but I would certainly say, in my particular experience, he was aware that what he was doing wasn't okay. But you know, it's a confused—he's a confused mind as well, because there were also times that I know that he was proud of it. So. It's a very
0: strange juxtaposition. I mean, on so many fronts, and we'll get into this, but it's so difficult to imagine prima facie that an adult, someone in their 20s, would not register that there was some moral issue with being a predator. That's something that I'm just so clear on wanting to communicate, that it is this pernicious, incremental, slow build, that before you know it, you don't even realise that you're in this absolutely perilous situation. Is that a fair account? Because that's what's been communicated to me by sexual assault victims all over the world.
1: It was planned from the start. You know, there's a lot of time and effort has gone into getting that victim where where they are. If this is the lens that you've kind of grown up with, you'll spend a part of your life still indoctrinated into that belief. And I know that there were lots of times in my life where I had to keep flipping things. So once I was hitting the ages of my abuser, I would flip in my mind well would I start a conversation with a 12 year old no just to really start to see how wrong the behavior is but there's this other side about when you have kind of deconstructed that and you've come to terms with like the ways in which you are manipulated and, and that that abuse wasn't just the sexual stuff that took place actually the abuse was everything that happened beforehand and that that is what grooming is you start to see things that other people don't see so I had a situation recently where I was shown something a note that was explaining somebody's interaction a grown man's interaction with a young girl and they had stepped over some lines and it's not clear exactly what lines were stepped over but in the note was this statement I just wanted to teach her boundaries and I saw that statement and that to me was the biggest red flag imaginable But I realised that no one else looking at this written material around me could see that. But it's this thing of like, like the boundaries. I'm teaching you boundaries, or I'm educating you on sex, or I'm introducing you into the into adult sexual behaviour. Like it's this this twisted kind of using, you know, a moral justification for themselves for their actions. And if you don't quite know where it's coming from, you might not switch on to the fact that that is actually classic language of an abuser. Because their modus
0: operandi is to redraw boundaries constantly so that you stop being alarmed when the boundaries change.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it just really struck me, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive with this because it's an active situation in my life at the moment. Um, probably the first time it really struck me that wasn't a red flag to anybody else who saw it. But to me, I was like, there's your evidence. There's your evidence that this person is a predator. This is the language of a predator. I've seen it before. I've experienced it before.
0: As a teenager, Jem, you told your parents that you wanted to see a psychologist, something they agreed to, but they never asked you why. Can you account for that?
1: Um, I think it goes along with what is probably common to a lot of people um I'd quite to think in this generation it's starting to change but a lot of families you know it sweep things under the rug don't want to know about it don't want to hear about it so if I think my parents are boomers so they certainly their own childhoods would have been you don't talk about it doesn't matter what it is you don't talk about it neither of them saw a psychologist in their entire life Even as my mum died from cancer, neither of them saw a psychologist. Like it was just not a done thing. And if anything, that's a sign of some kind of weakness that you would seek that kind of professional help. Like self-care didn't exist in those terms. I think with each generation, that's sort of being watered down. Okay. So this is why I have the question, because if you had said, right,
0: that you'd asked to see a psychologist and they dismissed it out of hand and said you don't need to see one because that was not part of their world or part of their, you know, way of thinking. You don't air your dirty laundry. You certainly don't do it with a professional. See, that I get. What I don't get is that they were supportive of you going but they never inquired as to why. So for me perhaps it means that there wasn't a complete aversion to you seeking the support you needed but there was no inquiry, there was no curiosity about their kid. Did you feel it was fundamentally unsafe to tell your parents about the abuse?
1: I think at the beginning I felt like I couldn't tell them for because of shame. And then once I, like, and also David did a very good job of making sure that I didn't tell them. That's part of grooming. Don't speak about it. Don't speak about it. Only trust me. I'm I'm the person in your life. They're not good to you. I think then there's shame and then there was also a sense of I don't think my mum can handle this, I don't think my parents can handle this and kind of taking on the adult burden of what happened to me as a young child. So it's not that I felt in danger like if I told them something terrible would happen, it just felt like I suppose A, maybe I would be in trouble um, because I was a bad kid (laughs) She was always getting herself in trouble. Oh, you got yourself in that situation. Let's blame the victim. I have this line in the book that um, my mother was this person that took every hurt that was ours and made it her own. And that's what I believe that she would have done with this. And and I felt that even at a really young age, at you know, probably sort of 14, 15, I started to go, hang on, what has happened here is not right. And I also became very, very shut down. So as my friends around me are starting to kind of experiment with sex I'm closing off and closing off and going why am I closing off why does this induce terror in me when other people are starting to be exploratory with their sexuality whereas I was running the opposite course so that's when I started to sense something was wrong but there are so many layers I think of of unpacking because the other thing about grooming is like you know you're 12 years old, you're a kid, your brain is at such a formative age. Like it, I was so deeply manipulated that I actually think that it, it's it took so, so many years, like really 20 years before I completely understood that none of it was actually my fault at all. Um, and if you'd asked me at any point probably from 18 onwards, I would have said, no, 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 I understand the situation. I know it was done to me and it wasn't my fault. And well, I wouldn't have said that, but I, I have a grasp of this situation uh, and I've dealt with it, and I was wrong, right? Like, and maybe I'm wrong now when I say that I have dealt with it, but I've certainly dealt with it a hell of a lot more than I had at younger ages. And so you're saying that
0: sort of between the ability to recognise that, that a wrong was perpetrated, but to actually internalise that mm. can take an awfully long period of time.
1: Like, so I knew what he had done was wrong, but there was part of me that still held myself responsible for it. He would amp that up well you were this kind of kid and you're always going to get into trouble you're lucky it was me not somebody violent like you know that was all in there um right like I think I held some degree of responsibility for it for really for 20 years for and, and other people and I write about this in the book too other people played into that so I'd try and tell them what had happened and they would go "It doesn't sound like a very big deal which kind of blows my mind now when I look back on that, that people around me at 16, 17, 18 didn't see this as a big deal. I can't explain that. (laughs) But I don't think that helped either because so many people around me were telling me like, oh, that doesn't seem like such a big deal, so get over it.
0: It's funny because I was going to say to you in my optimistic way, you know, we've come so far, but then I think yesterday there were marches all over Australia because we haven't come far enough at all. So there's a lot further to go. And um, I hope we're in a place in 2021 would look at a 12-year-old girl or boy for that matter who was uh, sexually abused as something heinous, horrific and something that we would desperately try to heal, not something that needs to be either brushed under the carpet or minimised or relegated to just some sexual experimentation because it's anything but that. And if I get one message across today, that's what I'm very, very clear on. At 17, you do the inconceivable gem. And I say that with every ounce of respect. I mean, for those who aren't aware, you've devoted your entire career to alleviating inequality and poverty. And if you see injustice, you feel compelled to do something about it. But to go to court at 17 to take on your abuser without parental support, how? Just how?
1: I have tried for a long time to find an answer to that. I think part of it is the naivety of you. So I didn't know how hard it is to get a successful conviction in any kind of sexual abuse case, really. But keeping in mind, by the time I went to court, it would have been... For three to four years before the last incidents of abuse had happened, I had no witnesses. Then I had um, some email. Uh, they took his computer, so there was probably a bit of evidence in there. But I, I had nothing. Everything was like in my childhood bedroom. <laughs> you know there, there was no no witnesses so I look back on that now and I'm just like gosh you know I'd never try and take that to court now because the chance of a successful conviction is so slim so part of it I think is naivety like I, I went into that at 17 going this was a huge injustice you stole my childhood I'm living repercussions of it now and I to some extent I had a sense that I probably would always have some repercussions from his actions I wanted to make sure he never did it to anybody else because I do know of other girls that he abused and I wanted to make sure that it was stopped. I just didn't have the the life wisdom to realize what I was up against. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't, right? Because if I did, I probably like so many women would have backed away from pressing charges. Something
0: that ultimately had weighty implications for David's life was a deal that you made with the court during the court proceedings which was, if I've got this correct, you'd forego the statutory rape charges and a public court case as long as David pleaded guilty to charges across two time points, namely the start and the end of the abuse, which was over a period of years. Can you explain why to me and why that was so important to you and what you wanted the record to reflect?
1: It was really important to me at the time that it was on the record that I was hunted you know, he chose me online, he groomed me for a period of time before sexual abuse took place and then it went on for years. And there were times he left my life and then he would come back and start it all over again. And I wanted that to be reflected, that this wasn't a some guy got drunk and, not that this would be excusable, but some guy got drunk and abused a child, (laughs) not okay anyway, but I wanted it to be reflected that this had been systematic Um, and a systematic destruction of my childhood as well so I asked for that um, at the time for me personally to be able to move on but when I asked for it it didn't really have any legal implications it was you know he pleaded guilty to a range of different sexual assault charges over a period of three or four years at the time that was quite incidental but South Australia has reformed its sexual um, abuse and child sexual abuse laws quite a bit since then. So by having him plead guilty to incidences at two different points in time makes it seen by the court system as though I was two different victims, which creates a track record of child abuse beyond one child. It's now multiple, which places him on the sex offender register. So, he will be on the sex offender register for the rest of his life. He's unable to travel to other states without allowing both the state he's leaving and the state he's in uh, to know. Like, every time he gets pulled over by police, it's right there, registered child sex offender. And because I was 12 at the start, there was a later reform that meant that that became serious child sex offender. And that will be there for the rest of his life. Right.
0: David sent you letters during the abuse that you suffered and I absolutely don't want you to go into any of the details of it. I'm just trying to establish if in the way they were written there was any room for confusion as to what you were being subjected to.
1: No. um, He would fall in and out of my life And, and I don't know what that's about in terms of what was going on his side of things. I don't know why he came and went but he did. And times when he was trying to come back to my life, like, I'm not on a bulletin board. There is no internet. I have no mobile phone. How do you get to a child? Well, you get to them through snail mail. That's all there was. So that's what he did. And the letters would describe the things that he used to do to me and say, I miss doing these things to you. I miss this time with you and I want to do this again. And there were quite explicit descriptions in those letters of, you know, climbing through your bedroom window, doing this, doing that. Um, pages and pages and pages of them.
0: The reason I ask is because, to my horror, your mother discovered these letters during your adolescence and did nothing about them. So I'm a mum and I'm going to ask you how that is even possible and then I'm going to move on from my, my fury and my rage and then I'm going to ask you, how did you come to discover even that your mother had access to these letters or had found them? I'll
1: start with the second question first. So I found the letters sure. um, in my mum's nightstand um, and they were all opened and thumbed through. They were clearly read. My dad says to this day he never saw them. I took them back and I threw them away and I didn't because I didn't want to talk to her about them. In terms of how she could have those and not act, it unfortunately yeah. And this comes up a lot with my book. People go like, Really, really? Did your mum really know? And she really didn't act? And I can tell you, and also like, you know, I've had six years of complex trauma therapy, so I know from my complex trauma therapist, it, it, this is just actually such a common story that things have happened in parents' lives where they find themselves unable to step in to protect their own children. And if that wasn't the case, it wouldn't be such a trope, frankly, that the the stepfather is the abuser or the boyfriend of the mother is the abuser, which we hear of a lot. And again, in, in, in all of those is a mother for different reasons being unable to act in the best interests of her child and protect her child.
0: You say that your father was not aware of the letters to the best of your knowledge. How did you reconcile that she hadn't stepped in and protected you from the escalating abuse? What did that sense of betrayal do to you? I can't think of a better word. I mean, it is betrayal. How old were you when you found the letters?
1: I'm 14. Right. Which is also kind of peak, fuck you, mum. I'm an adult age, right? I don't need anyone's protection. Look, the thing is, and sort of why, like, I always describe my book as kind of telling two stories. Like, one is the story of me caring for my mother while she died, and the other is taking a man to court for child sexual abuse but actually it's about the intersections between those stories and and the reason it's the intersection between those stories is it wasn't until my mother was dying that I actually thought at all about the fact that she had known and that she had those letters like I had just completely put that aside and buried it and just gone I'm I'm gonna have a relationship with my mum for my life and and not deal with this and when she became terminally ill, it's like whatever part of my subconscious was holding that knowledge just went, nah, it's coming to the forefront. You were going to deal with it. And I spent the year that she had cancer just suddenly unpicking all these events that if you'd asked me at any other point, I'd, I'd put to rest. I had dealt with it. But I actually never had. And it just became clear to me when she was dying that um I'd, I'd never dealt with it.
0: And your psychologist told you that when parents are aware of their children being abused but don't act, it's usually because they've suffered similar abuse. What did you discover, Jem?
1: Yeah, so I did try to find out what might have happened in my mum's life that explained her action or inaction. I never got anything particularly clear. i I found out things that I think to anybody today, we would say something's happened to this person. So um, right after my mother died, I, I brought all of this up with my father and, and, and we did have conversations about it. And he told me things about my mum's life and about their sex life and their relationship that to you and I just go, it just screams of this person is an abuse survivor, like she's not okay. And I, I would say that to him, I'm like, you do realise what you're describing to me are patterns of somebody who's been abused, somebody who turns the television off in a sex scene, turns television off in any kind of sexual violence on television, cannot talk about sex, all sorts of things like that, more things that I won't talk about. I think to anyone today, we would all get a very strong sense that there must be something there, but he, he was genuinely, genuinely surprised and shocked to hear that. And, you know, it's interesting that he he was able to hold that for a period of time. I'd say actually probably just six months where he was able to sit with the reality that not only had his daughter been sexually abused but his wife had been too. And it came too much. And um, so when I was writing my book, I asked him for permission to use emails that we had written to each other in that time where he sort of went picking through my mum's past, thinking about, well, what could have happened and and who, and where, and, and what was odd about our relationship, and what were the things I couldn't quite make sense of at different times, and he said, you can use them, but I don't believe she was sexually abused. I've, I've shown those things to my psychologist, and my psychologist, who's like, this is a woman who's been sexually abused, but it I think it was just too much for him to hold, which I think, you know, is interesting, right, that here I am, I broke everything open, I told him not only was I abused, but his wife was abused, there was just this Very small window of time where he could cope with the grief of that and it closed over. And today my book is out. We never speak about my abuse. We never, none of it. He will not bring it up. He will not talk about it. He put it straight back under the rug, which really just affirms the fact that I was right when I was 14 and I thought my parents can't handle this. Well, here I am in my 30s and my parents can't handle it.
0: What have you since learned about intergenerational trauma? Because for me, it was actually such a critical part of your story.
1: Yeah, I mean, so much I've learned. I guess the thing that helped me make sense of what had happened to me was actually to really finally dismantle this kind of construction of I I was a bad child. And I always say, you know, to people, that family narrative is so strong that even though I became a professor in my early 30s, own a house, got married, you know all these things. I've published a book on top of being a professor. I'm still a bad child. I'm still the problematic, over emotional child. Like that narrative cannot be broken. Doesn't matter how much I achieve or overachieve. I'm just amazed. I'm amazed
0: by all that you've achieved, and I'm amazed by all the milestones that you've hit, despite what you've endured. It's absolutely remarkable. It is remarkable. So going back to
1: the thank you, going back to the, internet, <laughs> the <internet. laughs> No, I'm not very good at taking comments. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> like it's sort of getting to this point and going, well, if I'm still a bad kid and as an adult who's done all of this, I was never a bad kid back then either. I was a vulnerable kid. Well, why was I vulnerable? I was vulnerable because there was something messed up in my family. Well, what was going on in my family? Oh, actually, my mum wasn't okay. And then digging back further. Um, you know people told me your grandmother's relationship with your mother was very tense and there was some oddness there as well and you start to go like I have a line in the book of you know this isn't a story that started with David and I it started it started before I began with my mother and whatever happened to her maybe it started earlier back I have no idea what my grandmother lived through but you know five and one in five women have been sexually abused and similarly. It didn't start with David. David was abused as a child and I don't know what happened in his family lineage that set that up. It's this kind of unravelling of, you know, or this perfect storm of two families that have this history of entrenched abuse and and hidden abuse that find their way down to two people who come into contact and this is the impact of it. I've copped some flax. For this where I paint David as a full person not just he's evil he did these things like yeah he's a child abuser 100% I hate him I wish I'd never met him but he is a person and he does have um, complexity in his life that complexity is his own experience of abuse and his life is now completely shaped by the fact that he abused me so as I said he's on a child sex offender registry. So he's going to live in poverty for the rest of his life. That's there on his criminal records. So for as much as I will carry the abuse for the rest of my life, he will carry the effects of being an abuser for the rest of his life as well.
0: The tragic sadness is that not all, but many abusers were abused. It's no justification. It's no rationalisation, but it is part of the story. And the fact that you are able to talk about that being part of David's narrative, I suppose, demonstrates a lot of compassion. It doesn't justify what was done. Believe me, not in 20 lifetimes would I ever suggest it does. But life is nuanced and there are extra elements and that's what makes it such a quagmire. It's just so difficult to navigate this stuff.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what justice looks like in this situation. So I think 17-year-old me who took this man to call it her idea her very youthful idea of justice was I don't want him to do this anymore and I want him to be locked up and I don't want him to live a normal life because I'll never get to live a normal life in the sense that I will always live with the fact that I was abused adult me (laughs) sort of says well I don't know it's more complicated than that you know I didn't make the rules I didn't change legislation it's not up to me the fact that he will probably never hold a proper job that he'll live in poverty that he's got decaying mental health and all the risk factors that that sets you up for dying young and you know, is that justice for what he did um, in his 20s? I don't I don't know that it is. I don't think we have very good answers to what to do with people who commit these kinds of crimes. You can't paint a victim, i.e. me, as complex and you know, here I am, I was set in the path of a predator because of intergenerational tra- trauma that had happened before me and then say, well, this person is black and white and they're evil and that's the end of it. Like that just conceptually makes no sense. You have to handle both people with the same kind of nuance and gaze. And if you do that, I don't think it's that David necessarily becomes a sympathetic character. In fact, I gather a lot of people want to throw my book at the wall when they bring about <laughs> David. But it does raise questions about is this the outcome that we want as a society?
0: When you look at it from the perspective of the very high likelihood that your mother was abused, I don't think you've got any definitive data, but there is a very strong sense that she herself was a victim of abuse. Did it engender more compassion about your mum's own journey and maybe even a little bit more understanding about her sort of bombastic, attention-seeking ways, which often made you feel very invisible in her shadow, or not?
1: No, it did. And I think, you know, the first half of my book is me sort of unpicking the story of abuse with David and the second half is me unpicking the story of what happened to my mother. Where I sort of landed with that because the other thing about my book is that it's all kind of written in real time. So I wrote it as she was dying and then I wrote the second bit as I was trying to figure out what happened to her. So you're really there alongside me puzzling through all of these different pieces with me. And what I learned was that your relationship with someone after they've died can actually fundamentally change. Like I I love my mother more, I miss her more, I think I understand her more now than I ever did when she was alive. And sometimes I get caught in this sort of funny paradoxical head loop where I go like, I wish you were alive because then you know I could explain all the things I understand about you and we would be closer. But I also know that I've only arrived where I've arrived in my relationship with her because she is dead
0: I understand that do you think it may have liberated your mum had she had a chance to disclose to you you certainly chose not to raise having found the letters before she died and I really really wanted to know why because I just thought it's not my life it's your life but you're such a curious type, and you're so forensic with how you see the world. And I was just wondering, didn't you ache for a candid, honest, accountable chat?
1: Lots of people asked that. Lots of people asked that at the time it was happening, um, and she was dying. And people that I'd told, and they said, "Why don't you ask her? Why don't you ask her?" And every time I sat down with her, I mean, two things. One is, someone on cancer treatment, she was in psychosis a lot of the time. I might have just got plates hurled at me. (laughs) Secondly, I genuinely to this day, I have no regrets because I don't think she could have answered it. I think she would have just said, I don't know what you're talking about and shut it down. I don't remember that and just shut it all down. She never had the kind of emotional capacity to go there. I think that we all hope that when somebody's diagnosed with a terminal illness that they're gonna magically change into the person we always wanted and we'll have all the hard conversations that we thought we would have and my friend said to me people die the way they live Jem, and that's what was really clear in my mum's dying she died the way she lived and she was never ever going to be able to have that conversation and to try and make her have that conversation in the last months of her life to me it felt like I would be taking from her more than I was willing to take
0: You say in your incredible memoir, trauma rewires the brain, almost changing us from the molecular level up. Traumatic events produce profound and lasting changes in our minds, bodies, nervous systems and memories. They touch every part of us. They change us. We don't come back the same. We can't. How do you think trauma changed you from the person you may have been to the one you became? Now, you're magnificent, so obviously I'm not saying that with any pejorative lens, but I... You know, I look at one of my children, I have four children, I look at one of my children in particular and I have always thought that that particular child is me without the trauma. Like if I could have been made innately and organically as I would have been, that would have been me. So I was just curious, not that you haven't achieved incredible things because you have, but do you think that fundamentally you would have been different in the absence of that trauma?
1: I think actually what people probably misrecognise is that the success is despite of not because of the trauma. The success is me trying to outrun it, to prove that it didn't ruin my life, to be the good child, to be the person who wasn't affected by all of that. I think me without the trauma might actually have had a much quieter life.
0: (laughs) But I also I hear you. you also wrote, which for me was probably one of the biggest take homes of your memoir. You and I actually spoke about this before today. You wrote in a recent Guardian article, and forgive me for quoting you, but you don't have it possibly in front of you, so I I have to to provide context. To write a trauma memoir means meeting yourself in the darkness and committing some of that darkness to the page. But it does not necessarily follow that everything we find in that darkness needs to be revealed to others for one's own sake or for the sake of the readers. Crucially, it does not mean that people are entitled to know everything you find there. Trauma writers walk a tricky tightrope. Our stories must be told. They must be heard. But we cannot tip over the wrong side of the tightrope. This is not trauma porn. Our lives are not here for your voyeurism. And I just wanted to say I'm so grateful that you wrote that. I recently read a memoir of Alan Davies, who's a very famous British actor and
1: humorist, Alan Davis and, and I became I was... pen pals over our memoirs, actually, and our treatment by the media. Oh. <laughs> we had the same. Wow. That. Yeah, because um, there was that. That's fascinating. That. Yeah.
0: Because it immediately came to my mind when I read that. I thought there was an uh, There was a scathing article written about him because he did not want to be forthcoming with the minutia of the abuse that his father perpetrated against him when his mother died, and I was horrified. I've interviewed many sexual assault victims and I think my interview style is fairly penetrative but it's consensually so and permission is always sought and respect is always afforded and I never, I literally mean never, go anywhere the person doesn't want to go and I can say hand on heart, I have never ever asked a victim about the specifics of their abuse and I just think that society has so much to answer for because we live in this world where privacy has almost been completely deconstructed, completely. Who have we turned into? I mean, I'm not a doctor. I genuinely, though, believe in doing no harm. And we are talking about abuse and we are talking about lifelong impacts and lifelong scars. I might be nothing more than a storyteller, but we also have a duty of care to the subject. And this notion of people being, and your word was so profound, entitled to your most private memories and your most private pain just floors me. So thank you for writing that because people need to know that they do not have access all areas. And just because you have the courage to communicate the horror you've lived through and your lived experience does not give people a right to ask you questions that are just disgraceful i don't i don't get it maybe you you've got more of a handle on it and maybe now that alan davies is your pen pal you can give me some more insight but sitting where i'm sitting i don't get it
1: i mean i think alan and i had exactly the same experiences which is why we ended up writing to each other which was being asked by the media things, things that lie beyond the memoir that we'd chosen not to write about and so He had that terrible story. I had my phone number given out to radio listeners by a radio. No. No. Yeah, I was asked to produce court documents proving the conviction by another media outlet. Like I finished that piece that you read out by saying, like, I asked for this. I wrote the trauma memoir. just like the woman who wore the shorts got asked to be raped. Well, actually, no, we didn't. You know the point of a trauma memoir, the point of this is to show people you can survive it to help them unpack and understand their trauma and intergenerational trauma. I wrote a book that I needed to read as a teenager and in my 20s and the actual details of who did what to whom, when and where are completely utterly beside the point. If it was up to me, there would be even less of them in the book. There are a few in there and that is because of publishers wanting them in there. I tip my hat to Davies for re- absolutely refusing to talk about it. I got caught on live radio and didn't know what to do and said a few things I wish I hadn't said. It's not just about me and it's not just about Davies in the sense that like we talk, we wrote memoirs. There's a certain amount of exposure that we kind of have opened the door to because of that. When you really hack into trauma survivors for more details, what you're communicating To everybody else who maybe doesn't want to write a memoir, is well, it's not safe because look what happened to Alan Davies and he's a famous comedian, and look what happened to Gemma Carey and she's a professor. If they're not safe, I'm not safe. So for me, it's like, yeah, it's bullshit to do it. It's not the point, but also you're making it harder for other victims, and
0: that's not okay. I really want to talk to you about the concept of forgiveness. Because your take on it is so unique and it really fascinated me. And again, I'm going to quote you and forgive me for that, but your writing is magnificent and it needs your words, not my words. Forgiveness has come to be seen as necessary for victims to complete themselves, to become whole again, a way to reclaim self-efficacy. Forgiveness is something people would have you believe you do for yourself to end someone's hold over you. But sometimes, despite what we are told, forgiveness isn't something we should offer up to those who have wronged us even after sufficient penance. It shouldn't be the end point of the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. Forgiveness isn't always what allows us to move on from specters and monsters from our past. No, I don't forgive to have a future, and I can love without forgiveness. You've worked in the area of restorative justice. You've researched restorative justice. Do you still feel that way about forgiveness?
1: Yeah, I do. I don't forgive David and I don't forgive my mum, and I love my mum completely and I don't forgive her for what she did and I don't need to forgive David to live the rest of my life happily. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm angry and I'm not angry at my mum. It's more that I understand and I don't find what she did acceptable but I love her anyway. So it's about the contradictions that we can hold and, and I think particularly in family working out how to hold those contradictions can be really valuable. And your mum,
0: as, you, as you've as spoken about very candidly, she was given a, di- a terminal diagnosis. She had about a year to live. You tended to her with such love and such exceptional devotion. And I think that maybe my take home is that everything isn't linear. You know, you can love someone, you can adore someone, you can treasure someone, and you can feel profound hurt by that very same person and feel betrayed and feel that they let you down. And all of those things can rest in the same vessel. They can all live. It might not be easy to deal with those competing emotions, but they actually can live in the same being.
1: She was a goddamn crazy making lady, but I miss her every single day. It's actually her birthday today. So there you go.
0: That's unbelievable. You know, every time I speak to someone who's lost a parent, The day that it's a random day that's chosen from the schedule is either a birthday or the anniversary of their passing, or it's just, I don't know, it's amazing. Gemma, you've got more courage in your pinky than I'll have in 10 lifetimes, but I applaud your grace and your strength and your honesty. From you, we have so much to learn. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful talking to you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Such a pleasure.
1: Thanks so much for
0: listening today. The Brave Journey of my next guest is equally compelling and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful team, including my audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week. Today's episode of Brave Journeys was brought to you by Tidy, professional organisers helping bring calm to your everyday.